Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. On the science revolution this week, there is more news from the Republican death cult. We need to start calling things what they are. The Republican Party is a death cult. Ryan Felton drops by on why dangerous forever chemicals are still allowed in America's drinking water. Professor Richard Wolff will be talking about how and why capitalism failed to protect us from COVID-19. And in geeky science, Trump makes the case for Medicare for all. Stay tuned. One of the stories that I don't think gets covered anywhere near enough, since COVID started circulating around the world, every country, including the United States, are starting to see death rates going up in ways that are not explained. And most of those deaths have to do with heart attacks or strokes. And the prevailing assumption is that these are COVID cases that were never diagnosed because the only symptom that they presented was that they dropped dead from a heart attack or they were paralyzed by a stroke. The countries that have been engaged in neoliberal economic policy for the last 40 years, specifically the United States and the United Kingdom, and to a lesser extent, some of the countries of Europe, France, for example, also Italy and Greece, that have been moving in a neoliberal direction, are at greatest risk because their safety net, their social safety net, is the most frayed and fragile. It's also going to challenge for Europe, it's going to challenge the euro. Already they're bending the rules about can't run a deficit of more than 3% of GDP, etc. They're going to have to figure out a way around that. But uh, yes, I think that there's a very real possibility, although I don't think that it's necessarily going to be worldwide. What we're seeing right now is that China has fully bounced back. The renminbi, the yuan, the Chinese currency, was up, I believe it was 4% this morning. I think I was reading on the Financial Times. It's up substantially in any case. And why? Because China's fully back to business. They have basically stamped out the virus with the exception of the extreme northwestern region where they've got a border with Russia where it's coming across and the areas where they've got, you know, a million or two million Uyghurs in their prison camps. Well, God only knows what's going on there. But but outside of those regions, it looks like China has got this thing nailed down. The economy in New Zealand is back to normal. The economies in Taiwan and South Korea are back to normal. So I think that it's going to be a really tough time, particularly in the United States and in the UK, because we just have handled this so poorly. You know, the UK explicitly embraced a herd immunity strategy, at least for a few months. And then Boris Johnson got sick and came back and said, whoa, you don't want to do that. And now the Trump administration is openly embracing a herd immunity strategy, which is going to lead to a minimum of two million deaths. You know, if we have the case fatality rate for COVID in the United States is a little over 4%, I think it's 4.56%. And if you think that it takes 70% of the population to achieve herd immunity, well, let's say it just takes half. What if 50% of the population is herd immunity? So 50% of 340 million people, let's see, two goes into 
three one time, two goes into 14. So that's, that's 170 million people. So you'd have to have 170 million people get COVID in order to establish a 50% threshold for herd immunity. And most experts say 70%. So, but anyhow, we got, let's just pull a number, right? 150 million people. That's close enough. What's four and a half percent of 100 million people? Well, 4% of 100 million people is 4 million people. And 4% of 50 million people is 2 million people. So that'd be 6 million people dead. If the current case fatality rate is applied to half of America getting this. Now, yes, we have improved some of the ways that we respond to this, that over time will probably drive down our case fatality rate. But still, Trump is pursuing a strategy that has the potential to kill 6 million Americans. And I just don't see how that works for us, other than just plunging America into a crisis. But anyhow, scientists today, right now, are projecting 400,000 dead Americans by the end of this year from the coronavirus. And a new study was just published in the Journal of the American Medical Association suggesting that as of August, several months ago, there were 75,000 people who died of coronavirus who were never listed as having died of coronavirus. They had heart attacks, they had strokes, sudden death. And when you go back and you look at you know, what happened, they almost certainly died of coronavirus, they just never got diagnosed. So we're saying we've got 215,000 deaths. It appears we have well over 300,000 deaths in America. And we're discovering that back in February, the Trump administration gave a private briefing to hedge fund guys, among others, at the conservative Herbert Hoover Institution, telling them that the economy was in big trouble and get ready because of the virus. And as a result, a bunch of millionaires and billionaires made a huge killing while the American middle class, who got no warning at all, Trump was lying to us. We got wiped out. Meanwhile, the New York Times is reporting today that 8 million people have slipped into poverty in the last seven months. And that certainly understates the depth and breadth of the problem caused by the Trump administration's failure to stop the virus in the United States. It has been stopped in Taiwan. It has been stopped in New Zealand. It has been largely stopped in Australia. It's been stopped in South Korea. But here, no, 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 no. And in fact, Dr. Fauci is even saying now, because we've screwed this thing up so badly in the United States, because Trump has screwed it up so badly, we should just cancel Thanksgiving. And now the Trump administration is promoting herd immunity, and they've got this petition, this letter that they say is from 9,000 doctors around the world with a whole bunch of made up names on it. I.M.P. Really? This is a name for a doctor? Uh, (laughs) It's just... It's insane. And this letter is openly calling for herd immunity. Yes, let's like get 70% of Americans infected. Let's kill 6 million Americans. And then how long will that immunity last? We don't know. Might just be until the next season, just like flu and the common cold. You know, the Republicans have a long history of ignoring public health crises. They ignored the tobacco crisis for years and years. In 2000, Mike Pence even wrote an op-ed saying tobacco doesn't cause a cancer. They've ridiculed, denied, ignored that human activity is causing global warming. Even Judge Barrett is like, well, I don't know. Her father, by the way, has spent his, most of his lifetime as a lawyer for Shell Oil, which has a case before the Supreme Court involving global warming in a, in a, in a month or two. I'm, I'm astonished nobody brought that up. They were so, you know, let's handle her with kid gloves. Let's not talk about this cult that she's in. It's just mind boggling. 
They've been gutting regulatory agencies. They're before the Supreme Court saying do away with pre-existing condition protections. The Republican Party, let's call it what it is. It's a death cult. There is a family of chemicals that are referred to as forever chemicals. They're compounds that contain fluoride perfluoral alcohol. Uh, well, well, we'll ask our guest how to say it correctly, but these compounds are so, so stable, so locked up molecularly that they just kind of last for decades, centuries, maybe even millennia, God only knows. They are a problem, in particularly when they get in our water. Ryan Felton is with us. He's an investigative reporter with the special projects part of Consumer Reports. ConsumerReports.org is the website. His Twitter handle is uh, Ryan Felton, F-E-L-T-O-N, and, uh, or at Consumer Reports. And the title of the article that you can find over at ConsumerReports.org is Why Dangerous Forever Chemicals Are Still Allowed in America's Drinking Water. Ryan, first of all, tell us what are these forever chemicals and why should we care? The more common acronym that people might be familiar with is PFAS compounds, and they're used in a variety of manufacturing manufacturing processes to make things like lithium batteries, for example. But what's been found over time is that they are extremely persistent in the environment. So if they, in some cases, when they've emanated from a facility and get into the uh, environment, they just basically just stay there for years years and years, and then when they get into someone's drinking water supply, it's hard to get out. And and they're commonly found in pretty much every American, the vast majority of Americans, because they're used in so many different things. Like I said, batteries to fast food packaging. That's the primary reason to be worried is because they really are just, they're ubiquitous, they're everywhere. Correct my understanding if I'm wrong here. First of all, these are the chemicals the Mark Ruffalo movie, um, Mm -hmm. Dark Waters, was made about, which was just, if you haven't seen that movie, it's so worth taking the time to go watch it because, you know, it documented how these chemicals were killing people in this community, causing cancers and birth defects and all kinds of problems, number one. Number two, these are the chemicals, or at least the precursors to the chemicals, that make paper coffee cups that you can put hot coffee in resistant to both the heat and waterproof, essentially, to the coffee soaking the paper. They are the chemicals that line the inside of the little paper trays you get in pretty much any kind of frozen food that's pre-prepared. Stick it in the microwave, that's those chemicals. They line what used to be called wax paper that your hamburger comes in from your fast food joint. No, it's not wax anymore, it's a PFOA. Do I have all that right? And if so, why should we care about this? main reason is just, well, the the number one thing that you said is just the health concerns that have been found in the two compounds that that have been studied, PFOA and PFOS, which were the subject of that movie that you talked about and the story that that film depicted. There's just a wide range of health effects that have been linked to these compounds. But the more, you know, I think aspect of this that's concerning researchers and advocates is there's just so many of these compounds. The movie and cover depicted maybe two of them. State regulations in only a handful of states have limits in drinking water set for a few of them. As we know now, there's about 5,000 of these compounds in the PFOS family, 
that exist. And so in some cases, it's been found that when a company that maybe previously used a now regulated substance, they can just go and get a similar but unregulated substance and begin using that in their manufacturing process and still do the same sort of thing. But the concern there is these replacement compounds, the studies that have been done, seem to show the same sort of risks as the best study to PFAS that we're aware of at this point. Mm -hmm. So you would think that the role of government, a proper role of government, would be to restrain corporate behavior when making a buck is put above human lives, which is certainly seems like that's what we're talking about here. And certainly that's what that movie portrayed. Uh, you know, Mark Ruffalo's, uh, I think it was Dark Waters was the title of the movie. Yep. You know, we do have a large faction in the United States, you know, and basically one entire political party that is committed to the idea that, no, that's not the role of government. You know, if people get sick from a product that a company makes, they should sue the company. And when it gets so expensive from the company being sued over and over again, they'll stop making that product. This is the, you know, the libertarian sales pitch, essentially, the conservative sales pitch. And frankly, I think that you know, Trump's response to the coronavirus is simply a variation on that. I think it's ideologically consistent, you know, going all the way back to the New Deal. What is the debate going on within government? At, to what extent is this federal versus state or local? And what is the state of the regulation of these chemicals? And how aggressively is the industry fighting regulation? Yeah, it, it, I, I guess the best way to describe it is just a, a complete grab bag uh, uh, mix of a situation. The uh, EPA has been looking at this for over 20 years. It, it first became known of the risk to uh, potential risk of PFOS in the late 1990s, um, and it just has slowly uh, taken steps toward implementing any sort of drinking water standard. And still, after 20 years. It's yet to even propose a uh, drinking water limit that you might, you know, that that would be enforceable. So something like arsenic is currently regulated in drinking water systems. Uh, But but we're still years away uh, from potentially from any sort of rule even happening. I mean, one thing that came clear in my reporting is if there was a rule or limit proposed today by the EPA, we still wouldn't see it finalized potentially for several, you know, seven, eight years. Um, so wow. some states have stepped into that void and have begun enacting limits on their own for both, you know, respective to their own states. And uh, I think what, what's most striking about that is in you know, states like New Jersey, Vermont, they set limits for PFOS compounds that are that are much stricter than what the EPA has said in voluntary guidance. And so that, that's what the EPA has done at this point at the federal level. They said uh, you, you, water systems shouldn't have more than 70 parts per trillion of PFOA and PFOS. States have, have, have enacted standards, uh, enforceable standards that are, you know, three, four or five times more strict than that. And scientists say it should be even lower, uh, or even not lower is kind of a strange word to use here, but even more stricter standard of one part per trillion versus the EPA 70 parts per trillion. So you have this wide hmm. gulf of um, you know, perspective and, and, and enforcement levels that are in, in place. And, you know, I think what that presents is just there's, uh, there's just a lot of uh, Americans who are exposed uh, to drinking water that could be contaminated with levels that are, that are either above that, those voluntary li- limits or, or what scientists may say, or say is, uh, is yeah. a safe level. 
Back 30, 40 years ago, before these chemicals were ubiquitous, frozen dinners used to come in plastic trays. We used to use plastic cups or porcelain cups, but I mean, you know, if you're picking one up from a fast food place, it would come in a plastic cup for hot drinks, things like that. I mean, aren't there, Mm -hmm. these chemicals are not absolutely essential. If they are causing death and destruction, and if they're not, please correct me, why are we not doing something about it, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, that's something that a lot of researchers have have really started to mobilize around recently is this idea of only using it in essential cases. PFAS compounds are commonly used in firefighting foam, so in some limited circumstances, say on like a military ship, you know, maybe that makes sense. But there is a lot of consideration being made toward how do you sort of rethink the use of these compounds, and that's something that, you know, I think is going to be a big focal point in the conversations around how to regulate this going forward. Yeah, go back to waxed paper for your burgers. (laughs) Ryan Felton, the investigative reporter with the Special Projects Division of Consumer Reports. ConsumerReports.org is the website and the Twitter handle. Ryan Felton, also the Twitter handle that's titled Why Dangerous Forever Chemicals Are Still Allowed in America's Drinking Water. Ryan, thanks for the great reporting and for dropping by today. Thanks. Sponsoring the interview this week is... On the line with us is The Economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work.info, the author of numerous books, including his latest, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, Professor Richard Wolf, rdwolf with two fs.com. One of his websites, his Twitter handle is profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Professor Wolf, let's talk this week about your book, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save It from Pandemics or Itself. How is the form of capitalism that we practice here in the United States itself problematic in context of trying to provide for the general welfare, the general health? Well, I think uh, to be blunt, but to be clear, it doesn't work. Capitalism is not a way of managing public health, and we are just now living through a horrific lesson in that truth. And let me briefly explain. We have in America the companies and the factories and the trained personnel who can make masks and gloves and ventilators and hospital beds, everything you need. We have it. We also know that viruses are a part of life. They've been with the human race from day one. We had a terrible one 100 years ago. We really know what they can do. So we know we need to have stockpiled across the United States adequate materials like masks and so on, because we know viruses are transmitted from one mouth, one face to another. We fail to do that. The United States, with 4.5% of the world's people, uh, has 25% of the COVID cases and deaths. What happened? Answer. It wasn't profitable for companies to produce and stockpile masks. There's no secret here, and there's nothing complicated. The reason is simple. If you produce millions of masks, then you have to store them around the country, presumably near centers of population. You have to monitor those masks in those warehouses. Do they stay clean? Do they deteriorate? If they deteriorate, they have to be replaced. If they get unclean, they have to be sterilized, etc., etc. You have to monitor that. And how long do you have to wait? Well, no one knows till the next virus comes. That's a very risky proposition. It's not very profitable when you think of all the expenses and the unknown wait time. So guess what? In a capitalist system where profit is the bottom line, the companies that could have made these things didn't do it because private profit is not the way you handle uh, the problem of public health. The first demand of any economic system would have to seem to me to be to sustain the health of our people. Otherwise, the rest of it really becomes moot. It's no longer relevant. And this is a system which puts profit first. And in this case, the profit dictated not to produce what the public health demanded. And the government could have stepped in and said, okay, private capitalism really uh, stinks when it comes to public health. So the government, to compensate for the failures of capitalism as an economic system, is going to come in and do it. In other words, the government will pick up the risk by holding this stuff in warehouses. It'll pick up the cost of those warehouses and of maintaining. It would do all of that because private capitalism fails. And we know that the government could do this. That's the worst of it, because the government already does. As my book tries to make clear, it's equally unprofitable to produce a missile or a machine gun or a jet fighter or any of the other basics of our military equipment. And so what happens is private profit would dictate to companies 
don't make those things. Don't store them in expensive warehouses because nobody knows when the next war using them will come down the pike. It's like a virus, you might say. So what does the government do? It comes in and it buys the jet planes and the tanks and the machine guns as fast as they roll off the assembly line. And then at our taxpayer expense, it stores it, it stockpiles it, it maintains it. So we know the government could do it, but the government, beholden to this ideology that private profit is the magic road to everything, didn't step in to do in the medical care field what it does as a normal matter of business in the military field. And I think it's a tragic explanation that capitalism left to its own profit-driven decision-making is a disaster for us. The health-wise, yeah. I just read Zeke Emanuel's book, Which Country Has the Best Healthcare? And right. he goes through South Korea, Taiwan, most of the European countries. I mean, he goes through a whole bunch of different countries and examines how their healthcare systems are put together and where they came from. And none of them are rooted in capitalism. None of them. The closest you can get to one that is not a government single-payer system is Switzerland, where everyone is required to buy health insurance. And there are something like 100 health insurance companies in Switzerland, but they are all also heavily regulated and required to be not-for-profit corporations. So there's no profit motive. So I don't see where capitalism is functioning anywhere in the world in the healthcare sector in terms of providing healthcare to people, except in the United States, and it's clearly not functioning here. Yes, and I think the underlying message here is one that American ideology, the dominant ideology in this country, refuses to face. Uh, we have to understand, we live in a society which is fundamentalist in economics. And I mean that in the sense like fundamentalist in religion. It has an idea. It is the idea for them that is the absolute truth. Everything else is to be rejected. And the, tr the evangelical notion of economic fundamentalism is that the private sector is always efficient, always best, always the optimum way to go. And this is craziness, especially when it's costing us 210,000, if my numbers are correct, of dead Americans because this government is unable or unwilling to step in when the private profit capitalist system really messes up. I'm hoping that the lesson will be learned, tragic though it may be, to have spent all of these sick people right up to our president to, to teach the lesson. But that's what the book tries to expose. You lay it out brilliantly. We're talking with Professor Richard Wolff, his latest book, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. What are your thoughts on how we transition from a capitalist, profit-driven healthcare system to one that resembles the rest of the developed world? I think we have to use the same basic approach that the rest of the developed world did, which is it's clear what the priority is, public health, and that's not just in terms of health care, but the quality of our food, uh, what we put in our mouths every day, all of that. Those are the bottom lines. Those are the priorities. And we have an economic system that is evaluated and judged on how well it does on that priority task. And by that calculation, we should see this pandemic, the one good thing that might come out of it, all right. 
We learned our lesson. Let's get a public health system of the sort that puts public health first and subordinates the private profit of a few to what is necessary for the majority. From your lips to the ears of every American, <laughs> let us hope. Professor Richard Wolf, the book, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, by Professor Richard Wolf. Meanwhile, it's now semi-official. Washington Post, Joel Achenbach, the headline, Proposal to Hasten Herd Immunity to the Coronavirus Grabs White House Attention But Appalls Top Scientists. Alex Azar, the guy who, when he was the CEO of Eli Lilly, doubled the price of insulin. He's now the head of Health and Human Services because Trump has this just standing policy. Any agency that has regulatory power that can be used to make billionaires richer and average Americans poorer, we're going to put somebody in that position who is going to work to make billionaires richer and average people poorer. And Alex Azar is a great example of that. He's in charge of HHS. A, A senior administration official, this from the Washington Post, the senior administration official told reporters in a background briefing call Monday that the proposed strategy, Alex Azar was talking about, our strategy for COVID, is basically herd immunity. Quote, the plan is endorsing what the president's policy has been for months. National Institutes of Health Director Francis Collins, NIH director, works for Alex Azar. The plan is endorsing what the president's policy has been for months. The president's policy, protect the vulnerable, prevent hospital overcrowding, and open schools and businesses. He's been very clear on that. Well, how do you do all those things at once? Uh, without everybody wearing masks, without everybody being regularly tested and contact tracing? You don't. This is a herd immunity strategy. The person goes on to say, I don't think society has to be paralyzed. We know the harms of confining people to their homes. So the administration, the Trump administration, has embraced herd immunity. They're just saying, this is it. We're going to try and spread this virus as far as wide as we can. And Donald Trump, in the 20 days until the election, every single day wants to be out in front of thousands of people helping spread the virus in those communities. Now, we know that there's a couple of people in the hospital right now as a result of Trump's doing a rally. A bunch of infections have been traced to this, two of them hospitalized. His Tulsa rally spiked coronavirus all across Oklahoma. This is happening everywhere Donald Trump goes. As a few weeks later, you see this spike in infections. Well, that's actually their policy. Spread the disease until 70% of Americans are infected. So we have 340 million people. 70% of that is 238 million people. All 238 million people will then be at risk for the known side effects of this, like dementia, strokes, heart damage, kidney damage, and severe chronic fatigue. But right now, according to Johns Hopkins, our case fatality rate is 2.7%. In other words, if 100 people get coronavirus, 2.7 of them will die. If Trump's policy of infecting 238 million Americans, 70% of the population, to create herd immunity, if that policy is followed through and we have a case fatality rate of 2.7%, that means you have 6.4 million dead Americans. Just do the math. 2.7% of 238 million people is 6.4 million Americans dead. On top of that, we have multiple confirmed reports around the world, tested, checked, peer-reviewed science, 
that people are getting reinfected by the coronavirus the same way that we periodically get reinfected with the flu and the common cold. Yeah, we get immunity to the flu and the common cold. That's why they go away until next year when the immunity fades or there's a new variation on the virus. And every time they've developed a vaccine for common cold virus 123, turns out it doesn't work for common cold virus 124 because it's mutating constantly. It's just, it's, it's impossible to develop a vaccine. It's a challenge that we have with flu. Half the time, because flu is constantly mutating, half the time the flu shots have very little effect against the main strain that's floating around because they guessed wrong a year in advance when they started developing the vaccine. There are now seven major mutations of this virus that we know of, and there's probably dozens of others. He got two different variations on it, and the second time he got sick, he got so sick he had to go into the hospital and get oxygen. And this has been, you know, totally nailed down now, which raises the question of will a vaccine ever be effective, or is this going to be like the flu vaccine where it's a gamble? So even after 6.2 million Americans have died or 6.4 million Americans have died following Trump's herd immunity strategy, the other 238 million of us who are infected or who have been infected can get reinfected and have a brand new opportunity to die or have a stroke or have lifelong dementia. We are the only country in the world willing to pursue this stupid and deadly herd immunity policy, but we're also the only country in the world without a national health care system, which is at the core of any public health strategy. And that's the bottom line here. Until we have Medicare for all, until we have a national health care system, we're going to find it very, very difficult to do anything other than herd immunity. This is nuts. This pandemic is a wake-up call. We need Medicare for all, and we need it now. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.